Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic. With me is Aaron Cameron in our offices down on 16 York in Toronto, recording in person with Ali Damji, Managing Partner of Real Estate at Forum Asset Management. Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Long time coming here. Now I'm expecting good things because uh, you know, we've, there's been a quick the first. Well, the first episode of the first recording was scheduled for like, what, June, July? The it Land was, and yeah. Development Conference. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but here we are. Sorry, we got guys. it done. The we same did calendar it. year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Now November 24th. Yeah. Oh, Oops. Yeah. Anyway, it's okay. We got it done. Yeah. It was a pleasure delay. So Ali's got a focus on residential and not simply, you know, one subcategory under that heading. He's in a bunch of them. So we're going to have a, a pretty broad ranging conversation today on residential. It's all he does. It's what he knows. He's an expert at it. He's got a number of large projects that we're going to get into as well. Geography wise, he is Ontario bound, but uh, peeking over the border into other parts of Canada. We'll uh, get into that as well. But Ali, welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. And, and, you know, first things first, I am definitely not an expert. I would like to become an expert, but I think, you know, that's, that was a very generous comment. So <laughs> he's just setting us up for failure now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Next question. You've had a, you've had a long career before that. So let's get into your background. Yeah, for sure. So listen, I, I think I benefit from like a really wide background in real estate. I've been involved in acquisitions, development, asset management, even had to oversee the creation of property management group in one of my previous roles and dealt with every asset class from hotels to industrial to office, retail, and now almost exclusively in residential. So I think it gives me like a really good view. And certainly I'm very glad right now where I am in terms of not having to deal with a large office portfolio, that's for sure. But if we take a bit of a step back, you know, like I'm a pure play, always been focused on real estate since I was a kid. I think my teachers mentioned my mom that, you know, since about five years old, there were all the kids who want to be hockey players, firefighters. I was like, I want to be a real estate developer. So I had a single focus to become a real estate developer, especially when I realized, you know, I just, I wasn't going to be good at sports that I love to watch. So this that, is your Cinderella story since you're in real estate. Yeah, right? yeah, is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, it's great. And I do a lot of mentorship. You know, I'm, I'm also current president, just about to be outgoing of NAOP uh, Greater Toronto, which has really been an awesome experience. But I get to do a lot of mentorships and have been doing them for a while. And I think, you know, I come across many different people and some people are just like realizing that, you know, they want to get into real estate. They don't know what area of focus. And I always joke with them that like, I can't relate to you on that standpoint because I've always known from like being an undergrad and flipping houses to doing my MBA in real estate. So it's, you know, been been quite the journey. And I've had the opportunity to work in a place like Dubai, you know, again, managing asset managing hotels, including the Royal York and all city center Fairmonts across Canada. That was a pretty awesome experience to then, you know, spending eight years of my life helping build Hallmark to what it is today, which was a really awesome opportunity. It was a really tough decision leaving Hallmark after all the great things we did, you know, from growing from three to four properties when I joined up to, you know, kind of 40 plus and building a team that had, you know, over 40 people to structuring joint ventures with Sun Life, now 
Bendall Green Oak and OCAD University and First Capital. It was amazing to see that trajectory. You know, me and Jeff Hall and the rest of the Hallmark team are pretty are pretty close still. But you know, everyone understood that my last name wasn't Hall, so you know, I had to <laughs> had to kind of uh, move on to really uh, create, create Damjeet Mark. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't have the same shots fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it doesn't have the same ring to it. So it was actually really interesting timing. You know, I kind of planned this all out, and unfortunately, like the day that I told Jeff I was going to move on, and I'll go into my current story soon. It was the day Doug Ford announced the lockdown, right? So like that was time like fortuitously in a sense for both of us because I was so integral to the team, but it was like a nice cutoff point because, you know, think about it, March, 2020, (laughs) everyone's like basically just wondering what the hell is going on. And you're basically just like dealing with like emergencies, right? And giving me anxiety, just try to remember it. All like going back to what that was like. In in your life, your personal life, Uh, your work life, everything. It's uh, if you're you're doing transition, might as well do the full butterfly. Yeah, uh, totally. And, And so it fortuitously ended up just working out that way, I think for both of us. And certainly for me, you know, I was like focused with Hallmark largely on a mixed-use portfolio that had a lot of office and retail and getting a chance to pivot to residential, which... (laughs) See ya. Good luck. (laughs) Bye. I swear, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. But getting a chance to pivot to residential has been awesome. And, you know, joining Forum has been really amazing. Everything that I anticipated it would be. For a bit of a background, Forum has been around for 25 years. It was founded by my partner, Richard Abood. Richard is like such an awesome guy. He's, you know, basically created something out of nothing, started off with, you know, very few dollars and turned it into a company that has made over a quarter billion in profits over 25 years. So like a true Canadian like success story. And it started off with office leasing and then credit tenant leasing structures and then infrastructure, probably the most noteworthy being that forum built and financed the Billy Bishop underground tunnel. So a lot of P3 projects. That is now a legacy business of ours because that space got really competitive in the you know mid-2010s when large institutional players started getting into the space. And so that port- is it, sorry, this is infrastructure specifically. Yeah, infrastructure yeah. specifically. Yeah. And so that's all of our infrastructure assets were sold off and are still managed by us, asset managed by us. But there was real estate plays here and there. You know, probably most noteworthy is we together with a partner have the rights to build on-campus housing at York University. And that has just been amazing to see. It's it's definitely the best in class student housing project in all of Canada. And, you know, what, what came from that was, you know, this largely the like forums involvement in development was almost exclusively like on the capital structuring and like financing optimization side of it and not really like pure play development, you know, having the team to build it out. So when Richard and I met, you know, that was a real focus of mine. I wanted to build a developer. And it was a really interesting process where we talked for a number of months. Like I met him on site on a Sunday and I said, hey, this is an opportunity I'd love to look at. This is how I'd look at it. Would you see it the same way? Because when you're trying to build a partnership or, you know, hopefully I will grow this thing together with him. And, you know, we have a couple of other partners, you know, which I'll get into in a little bit. You know, the goal is to make sure the relationship is, you know, seeing eye to eye uh, right from yeah, the if you don't, If you're not thinking the same way, it's never going to work. Totally, man. So um, now that there isn't something to say for, you know, a good debate, 
<laughs> you got to still be on the same wavelength, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the goal was to build a developer. And so two years later, I'm very happy to say we have. Was there a moment in March where you're like, should I have done this? Or what am I getting myself? Or maybe it would have been March. Maybe it was like July or August of 2020 where you're, now you're you're in it, right? You're, you're you haven't left your house in three months. So it's not a two week uh, lockdown. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So so I, okay. So COVID has obviously I hit. You know we're gonna get into the dark hole of COVID. But what I will say is that I've been in the office like ninety five percent of the time through COVID. I've traveled a lot through COVID. I just kept my head down. Obviously things changed during COVID. But as you guys know, being at First National during COVID, like residential real estate in some instances was challenged, but has gone through a renaissance period with like super low CMHC rates and all of that. So, you know, we just kept our head down and continued on the business, recognizing that, you know, one day things are going to come back, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is going to be temporary. You know, I never bought into the new normal type of mentality here. You know, we so just plowed through. Just kind plowed of, through. Yeah. And, you know, we've been a, a work from office culture, but going back to it, you know, forum, like, Right now, we're at about 1.7 B of AUM. The partnership includes myself, Richard, our founder and CEO, Rajiv Vishwanathan, who is our managing partner and CFO. And he's a rock star too, because he, prior to being at Forum, was at Dream Office and Dream Global. And before that, bam. So like, you know, the combination of the three of us who are very real estate focused and minded is really great in that particular uh, way. And what's pretty unique about us is that we're not just in real estate. We also have a private equity business as well, which, you know, is, is really helps round out our investment focus and mindset. It's not just, you know, people drinking the same Kool-Aid that, you know, yes, real estate will continue to go up. Like our private equity team sees, you know, a lot of economic trends and foresight and has the foresight that, you know, with this current recession, we saw coming, you know, a little bit before I would say everyone else uh, saw coming. And that's just a benefit from, you know, having that discipline within in-house. So, you know, we have a goal of reaching 15B of AUM by the end of 2030, which is really ambitious. And that was like the best thing about joining this partnership because, you know, it's like an ambitious group of individuals who are all driving and want to put together a team that is, you know, focused on growing. And, you know, what we want to be is transition. And we're starting to transition from primarily balance sheet investor to a multi-product asset manager, where we're not only using our capital, but we have diverse capital sources. So institutions, you know, family offices, as well as retail investors as well. And how we've done that is, you know, in my business, certainly, like I mentioned, 17 people where we have disciplines across the board. We are, you know, dealing with in-house planning and development. We have construction oversight in-house, an awesome team of acquisitions, asset management, ESG, and finance people within my real estate business. And over the past couple of years, we built up a pipeline of about a billion dollars of projects that completed value and launched an open-ended private REIT, which... Last year was at about 200 million when we launched it. And it's focused exclusively on stabilized rental housing, not only multifamily apartments, but also student housing and co-living and, you know, potentially other areas over time. And, you know, I'm very happy to say that after a year, 
and, you know, approaching a very challenging fundraising environment in the current economic landscape is that we're up to 400 million of gross asset in the private REIT. So we'd like to grow this private REIT, you know, to over a billion within the next three to four years. And what we're trying to do is create an institutionalized product, an institutionalized team in the private REIT space, which has largely, you know, had challenges with, you know, managers that, you know, charge fees on fees, take big fees from their retail clients, and we're taking a bit of a different approach and tact, in particular with focusing on impact and ESG as well, because our team truly believes that that's not just to check a box, it actually drives alpha and value. We'll set us up. We're going to get into the, the nitty gritty and the details and the economics and the, you know, more of the, the, I don't want to say interesting part, the meaty part of just the marketplace and that kind of thing. But I, I do want to, for Forum, are you setting up funds for your developments? Are you doing LPs? Like, what's the structure look like? I mean, it, it kind of feels like you're kind of opening your arms saying, if you want to participate, you know, obviously I'm sure there are some hurdles, but come on in. So how are you kind of managing that? Yeah. So to date, we have brought in just, you know, individual LPs for each of our development projects. You know, goal, the goal over time when you want to become a multi-product asset manager, you know, is to likely go the fund route, co-investment route. And so we're, we're starting to think about that. Is sure. it just a scale thing? What's the LPs are easier? Or is there a tax implication? Like what's the logic between one versus the other? You know, I think it just gives you, it's interesting. We have this healthy discourse in our company all the time. And I think individual LPs allows you to find the right partner for each specific project, in particular, when you're not just developing one type of product, residential product. You know, we're doing residential condos now. We plan on doing it at least. We have a partnership with Slate where we've rolled up a a half acre site in downtown Toronto. You know, that's the ultimate play there, I think. It's student housing, it's co-living, it's micro units. You know, you want to find the right LP for each of those. On the flip side, having funds, when you talk to individuals who have raised funds, is that you have the capital ready to go and you can focus on, you know, finding the deals versus trying to find the deal, underwrite it, et cetera, and raise capital at the same time. <laughs> In the 60-day time window, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? So, I mean, the good news is, listen, we we can always bring in investors after we close. Like I mentioned, we have a healthy balance sheet and that hasn't stopped us to date on transactions. In fact, what has stopped more often than not, it's just finding quality transactions. And in the current market environment where there's a huge bid-ass spread between buyers and sellers, you know, that's been proven to be challenging. How much is it just reputation too? For that fundraising exercise, you have to have kind of a, a track record? For sure. How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the good news is we have a track record over Already, 25 yeah. years. And yes, it hasn't been always in real estate or pure play, you know, development. But that track record we've built up that, you know, Richard spearheaded is a great one. And I'll tell you, like when I joined and saw some of the returns that have been earned on our projects, anyone who sees our track record is like, sign me up. You know, we want to participate in your project. So. 15 billion? Do you want to go to the real estate I side? Go, oh, I want to go to 15 billion. Okay. Uh, I, want, okay. I want to get in the nuts and bolts We're thinking the same way here. There yeah, go. Like, so <laughs> 1.7 billion now, you want to get to 15 billion by 2030. So you need to acquire, build, whatever, about 70% of your current book annually. It's two and a half like, billion a year. I, yeah, or I, or I thereabouts. To, I wouldn't mind pausing the, po- the podcast and getting a calculator, but I think that's about right. <laughs> so you must be changing your approach. I mean, you can't do $10 million deals anymore. 
That's fair. You know, so it's, it's our big, hairy, audacious goal. And it actually also includes you know, positively impacting 50,000 lives, which we're actually tracking. So it's not just about pure financial growth. It's supposed to be gulp-worthy. We are not focused on $10 million, you know, development transactions. In our open-ended fund, which is called the Forum Real Estate Income and Impact Fund, it's called REEF. In REEF, we'll buy stabilized buildings that are $10 million if they have a strategic benefit. But certainly in the development business, it is, you know, about uh, projects of scale. That's certainly one thing I learned in my Hallmark days is, you know, you put the same amount of time in into a 50,000 square foot development as you do a 500,000 square foot development. And so, you know, I think what what ends up happening is availability of capital becomes the challenge as you go larger. And that's right? a and that's AUM too. So as an asset manager, perhaps you get approached by someone saying, "Hey, like you've got the expertise, yeah. I've got the capital, I want to build this four hundred million dollar thing," and, and you just you take that the, the reins, and that shows up as a big chunk of AUM. Yeah, totally. That's a very fair point. You know, you also have to remember because we're not just focused on real estate. I mean, you know, real estate will be a huge part of Forum's growth. And, you know, over time, like if you look at some of the peers out there who have gone on such a great trajectory, they're not just focused on, you know, like I mentioned earlier, residential housing. Like right now, that's what we're focused on. We see it as such a great opportunity, given the amount of immigrants coming into the country, the lack of housing for all the reasons that we know about. You know, you reference CMHC's report, which, you know, shows like a millions of units that are required to restore affordability. Like that is the opportunity right now. And it's a, yeah. and it's a big one. It won't get built. That's the, yeah. Well, and let's, let's, will. let's make sure you're a part of it. Let's yeah. get into that. Let's talk about some of those things. For sure. But I, I do want to just acknowledge your timing is almost impeccable. If you've started a new fund or a new asset management company, not new, sorry, but yeah. but pivoting yeah. into the multifamily or residential space at the beginning of a cycle, nearly the end of an old cycle, get your feet oriented and now spring forward. Like I, I, we, We're heading into a new cycle? Uh, well, I, I, you can't <laughs> not. What do you, there's the prediction. There is. Well, of course, there's always going to be a new cycle. Is it starting? Has it started? Will it start in the next six months? I don't know, but it has to start again. There always is a new cycle. <laughs> It's uh, it's cyclical. Real estate cyclical. Right now, yeah, I know. Ask any, ask you know, any, uh, you know, older individual in our in our space. It, they've this is the third or fourth time they've seen this check, right? So, right. just it happens. Anyway, let's start with land and kind of work through it. You're looking, I'm sure, or keeping your eyes open. It sounds like you've got the availability, of, you know, the liquidity. What is the land market like right now? Like, are you finding opportunities, or is it just it's just really tough to make well, the, 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 the numbers work. Hunter Lombard's your most recent one, That's right? right. Maybe in the context of that. What's that? that? Done, it's uh, downtown Toronto. It's a, I can't remember the total number of square feet, but a, a really prominent condo development site. And that was all done and priced and structured through COVID, or sorry, um, through the, uh, the interest rate increase since March. So maybe that'd be a great conversation started around land because you made that deal work and that's a big purchase. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, that is an awesome opportunity mm-hmm. because, you know, when you can partner with, your friends and, you know, a great partnership at a place like Slate, you know, it's, it's, it's something to be happy about. You know, that opportunity is an interesting one because it involved an on-market and off-market transaction. One is 86 Lombard, which was the city's first morgue and it's heritage designated And we had looked at it actually initially separately and then realized we were both looking at it. And we said, hey, why don't we just partner together? So it was really awesome. 
And we realized, you know, certainly get way more efficiency and greater density by rolling up the site next door. So one of my stories that I have, and I have to give him a really huge shout out. He's been like a longtime mentor to me is Michael Emery. When I was doing my MBA at Chulik, I cold called him and ended up doing like a case study with a team on Allied, which was really amazing. And I maintained an awesome relationship with him, you know, over the past kind of 15 years, 17 years of my career. And so I gave him a call and I said, hey, Michael, would you give me a shot? and Let me transact on 100 Lombard. And so we did and we closed on that piece and we've submitted for a very tall tower in the context of what's around there. But I think, you know, a couple of things we've done, which shows great alignment of the partnership. Lucas Manuel, Brandon Donnelly, who, you know, are the partners that I deal with at Slate constantly. We all see eye to eye that you need to have great design. Like we don't want to be just like merchant developers. And one good example is their One Delisle project up at Young and St. Clair, where they have Studio Gang involved. And we basically said, like, listen, let's bring in a Starkitect internationally, A, because we want to, like, we're good people and we want to do good things. But number, like, B, you know, there's been a payback when you look at projects that have been approved in Toronto. The better architecture generally has more density, you know, approved for it. So we went in with that approach. And, you know, on that project, we did negotiate it. You know, I would say we started last December, so rates were still low. But, you know, again, we saw the market coming. The beauty is on that project with how much density we're going for and we think we'll get because we're doing some amazing public realm. We're in at a very favorable price per foot. So that is, you know, I think in the context of the, of the current environment, sufficient buffer. And now going back to your question, when you look at what's out there right now, you know, vendors always take a long time to realize what the current market is currently pricing at. Well, unless it's improving and then they, and then they're happy to. Adjust yeah, yeah, quickly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Quick to adjust upwards, yeah. not so much going downwards. And so we're, you know, not seeing many great opportunities right now because that expectation hasn't changed. Couple that on the land side, you know, if you're going to entitle it and you plan to build something, whatever it is, construction costs rising, interest rates rising. It's not a very conducive environment to pull out your underwriting models and try and look at acquisition opportunities right now, unless it's a screaming opportunity. Now, with that said, you know, Bill 23 just uh, was yeah, what uh, is announced. That? It's, you know, will hopefully allow developers in Ontario to build housing and involves a number of changes to municipal and provincial rules, including development charge decreases, just in general, further for rental housing. You As know. of right, triplexes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, limiting third-party appeals, you know, like removing some architectural controls that increase costs and reduce density for projects. It's still being fleshed out. There have been some high-level themes that have been thrown out it out there from Bill 23. And I guess the industry right now is trying to figure out exactly what it means, but some great... And so that's that's into the legislation to, for approval or what's the stage? Yeah, so it should receive royal assent in March next year. It's gone through, I think, its second reading okay. uh, just recently. Yeah. Neat. It's a game changer. Even if some version of it gets through, it'll likely be a game changer. Yeah. Well, you know, what, I, what I'll say is, and I've talked to my peers who have looked at it from all the information we've been able to gather from a lot of the law firms and big industry associations like Build and, and NAOP is the impacts just help offset 
the interest rate increases that we've recently seen. Sorry and, about that, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Don't apologize. We didn't do anything. And, and, and We're not making any money off of it. <laughs> and where cap rates are, right? Like, I'm sure you guys are seeing this, is that how can anyone right now commit to an apartment, put aside condos and where you think sales are going to be, but just on rental housing, if you projected, and if for people in the ground right now, who were going to deliver projects in the next 12 months, they had probably underwritten takeout rates, CMHC rates in the like 2% range, right? Somewhere there. Like the big shortfall on the equity side on construction project completion is very risky and scary. I'm pausing because I want to, we haven't actually pulled on this string before for the podcast and you brought it up. So I'm, I, I can't be blamed for, for pulling this, putting this in. But it's an interesting comment because I don't think a lot of people would necessarily appreciate it. I mean, probably developers of apartment buildings do and lenders that lend on apartment construction do. But as you go through a development of an apartment building, you're always looking at what your exit is going to be. Whether yes. you're the developer or the lender, you're always looking at what is the end result. Once the thing's built and fully occupied, let's assume fully occupied and cash flowing, what's the mortgage you get yeah. on, at the end of the day? Therefore, you know, there's debt service coverage, interest rates, you know, and and, a, and ultimately a, a loan amount that results from those two those two formulas. When interest rates were two and a half percent, lenders and developers were working together and, and assuming an exit at two and a half percent. So let's say it's a hundred million dollar development, it's an eighty million dollar construction loan and an eighty five million dollar takeout loan. So yeah. we're saying you put twenty million dollars of equity in all things equal at the end of this thing, you get your rents, you achieve, I'm going to give you 85 million as your takeout. So you'll end up 15 million all in, 20 at the front, but you get 15 all in at the end of the day. And developers and lenders were perfectly happy because it all worked out. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking four, four and a half, five. It was five, I guess, a month ago. It's back down to sort of four and a quarter, four and a half now. Your exit is not 85 million, it's 70 million, right? So all of a sudden, as a lender, I'm going, whoa, 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 I, I can't give you 80 million as an apartment, as a, as a construction loan, is you're only going to get 70 million takeout. So sorry, Mr. Developer, I need you to put another $10 million in today to keep me on side, to keep us on side with the exit loan. So, so all across the country right now, developers and lenders are having this conversation about how much equity do these developers need to come up with mid-construction period that they weren't anticipating just to stay on side with what their exit mortgage or exit loan is going to look like. And that's a real big stress because if you've got, if you're a major developer and you've got four or five projects on the go, all of a sudden you got four or five different lenders calling saying, "I need ten million here, ten million there, ten million there." Like, and, and we need it now, and we need it now. Yeah, I'm not waiting. Like, I, I like you're offside, right? Yeah. Like, there are these, there are these sort of covenants of the loan that you have to retain your ability to re-meet the exit. And I don't, I'm not going to wait to to the finish line. <laughs> For you to come up with 10 million bucks, I want that 10 million dollars today, right? So it's a big stress on apartment developers right now. I don't think necessarily the, the market at large really appreciates. So I'm happy to hear that at least I'm not sure whether it was intentional or not, but at least there's something coming down the pipeline that is a positive for our, our developer partners. Well, just in Ontario, frankly, more needs to be done. I mean, something needs to be done at the federal level. And I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I'll say, you know, CMHC has these reports out there, you know, about all the housing that's needed. The federal government keeps letting in people. We have vacancy probably around the country hovering somewhere around 3%. That's what it's been historically over the past 20 years, you know, really tight in some markets like Toronto and Vancouver have increased, you know, 16 to 20% year over year in rents, right? Like that, that's because we have a fundamental supply issue. 
And I think, you know, the federal government needs to put their money where their mouth is and start to potentially subsidize interest rates and financing costs for rental apartment developers. Otherwise, they won't get built. And we might go back to an era, you know, in Toronto, you use as an example, for 20 years, apartments weren't built, right? It was primarily condo construction that fueled a lot of the indirect supply. And for so many reasons, having rental housing that is professionally managed by landlords is a huge benefit and a need in the marketplace. You know, another thing they could be doing is the removal or deferral of HST self-supply. Like you guys financing rental construction, you probably see how big an HST self-supply line item is on a developer's budget. So I think just more needs to be done. Yes, in Ontario, Bill 23 is helpful. It doesn't take us all the way back to, to get us to a place. But prior to interest rates causing all this havoc, we were in a very robust builder's market, Toronto in particular, of course, being you know, the most active in North America. So if we were to simplify this, I realize it's not as simple, but we'll make it simple just for this conversation. Uh, if it gets us most of the way back, it does most of the damage from interest rates, does that get us back to a robust building market? Well, in, and and I, this is what I was thinking the same thing. And you got rates, rents up 15, 20%. Yeah. This is a weird one for all of us. You, you talked about we're good people. It bothers me and it bothers us that rents are so high because it impacts our family and friends for totally. sure. But it does allow for more development. Yeah, that's It looks right. great on a spreadsheet, but... Yeah, right, yeah. Like, I, I, like while, it's totally not, uh, pretending it's, it's just numbers and math. It, it helps the math. It's awful from a humanity perspective because it really is squeezing everybody. But it does help more supply, presumably. But then do you, can you assume it stays there? Well, that I mean, I pose it to the lenders in the room here, right? <laughs> well, you guys, if you saw 15% year-over-year rent growth in a pro forma, how would you guys look at that? Like, you're not going to assume that it's going to continue forever. Before we're looking, yeah. No, no, I, I would. I mean, exactly. yeah. But however, if you could show me that the building next door is achieving those rents... And, but that's and current retain, pricing. Though, yeah, would retain, you underwrite to 2025, no, assuming no, 15 no, per right, year? Yeah. Even though that could happen. No, it's yeah, today. Uh, it's yeah. whatever you're achieving today. Yeah, we, we yeah. wouldn't accept. I think it'll be seven bucks per foot in 2025. Well, good work. I, mean, so, I, would, I would take that wager, you know, between you and me personally. But yeah, I wouldn't put it into Yeah, a, you wouldn't get it. You yeah. wouldn't get it. It wouldn't pass so, any credit committee review. Yeah. So therein lies, you know, another topic you brought up with the rising costs, you know, rental rates increasing because of supply. We can build this like, you know, larger product but it's just like, who's actually going to live in it? Like the city of Toronto, as an example, or city of Vancouver, aren't filled with people making over $150,000, right? And so the other area we're trying to innovate is creating small format housing, smaller units. You know, I had an opportunity to go to London and Amsterdam earlier this year. And the idea was to look at what small format housing looks like. How comfortably can an individual live in 250 square foot suites? And I think that's a, you know, certainly happens all over the world. North Americans, I think, need to get used to the fact that, you know, we need to have smaller living spaces to make affordability attainable, right? Well, I mean, you're in the right markets to look at for that because, you know, you said London and uh, Amsterdam. I mean, that's Toronto in 20 years, right? Yeah. I mean, they're more adapted to a market that is permanently expensive. I mean, while I'm sitting in the comfort of a regular size home, I have watched YouTube videos and some of the innovations people have done to make the most out of small spaces. And it's pretty incredible. And you go, isn't that great? But of course, I'm sitting in a you know suburban home 
admiring it. I, I, out of the living experience, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel about that. I mean, we've we've yeah. seen it like because we develop a purposeful student accommodation. We've already seen unit sizes, you know, in the kind of two hundred twenty-five to two hundred fifty square foot range. And, you know, yes, people aren't living there for their entire lives, but you're looking, True. look at the cohort and demographic that would live in that space. Someone, either a student or someone, you know, up to their mid-30s who's an urban professional, assuming when everyone gets back, back to the office in full, you know, they're working a lot. They're going out a lot, enjoying the city. They just need a place to put their head down, yeah. right? And so, you know, I, I, I want to touch on a point that you brought up, like, London and Amsterdam, you know, we might be there 20 years from now, but I think we need to do something now. Because if you look at, you know, okay, what's the average rent right now? Four bucks a foot for a new rental. Average square footage is 600 square feet, 2,400 bucks a month, plus utilities, plus your internet. Like you're, uh, you're touching 27, $2,800 a month right now. And that's not even including furniture. And not many people can afford that. Right. And so something needs to be done. And that's a big area we're passionate about and are trying to spend a lot of well, time. Let's, on. I just did the math. It's, let's call it $3,000 a month times 12. And if the CMHC's guidance is 30% of your income, you need to make $120,000 a year. Right. Exactly. And our average household income in Toronto is something like 60 to 70K. So that's a problem. And so yeah. that's a big area of focus where everyone, on my team, an awesome, passionate group of city builders and, you know, rental housing solution providers. We're all thinking about that. How do we innovate? How do we make units livable, but smaller so that our pro forma works, but they're still affordable? At that price point too, I mean, the solution, current solution for a lot of people downtown is just living in very low quality buildings with a little more space. But as an alternative, you know, really well located, smaller, high quality could change somebody's opinion. You know, like when you're speaking, I was thinking about that. Well, the exchange I made when I was 23 years old and I wanted to be downtown at, you know, any cost was living in really terrible places. Right. You know, and uh, now, yeah, now in my 40s with children, it's kind of hard to imagine that I wouldn't live in those places either. But as an alternative, which is not readily available now, smaller, higher quality, very well located, would be appealing to me. At with good age. amenities, right? Yeah, like, yeah for sure. Totally. There's, there's gyms and, and common areas that are attractive that can, you know, replace your living room. And I've said this before, but, you know, I was in Japan for a while and, and Korea and both have very different views of what a living space should be. And they're just out and about way more often. Like Tuesday night at midnight, it's just still busy downtown because people just don't want, they don't go back to their house and sit there and sit on their couch. They don't have a couch, right? It's either you're right. sleeping in bed or you're out. And that's just part of the culture. Now it's going to take generations to move it. But I think that's, that is ultimately where you know, major, major urban centers to all not naturally evolve to. Totally. Okay, we're running out of time. Do you want to cover what your micro units look like? Or do you want to go into just other opportunities for the forum, for what, forum asset management? Why don't we go to other opportunities? Okay, let's go. Yeah. All right, so we got a couple of minutes left. Why don't you just talk about the other kind of things that you're excited about in the future? Yeah, so I think, you know, they're kind of tied. The other big area and big push is, like I mentioned, purposeful student accommodation. There's like something like a 450,000 bed shortfall across the country. That's something we would where we want to institutionalize that space. There's a few in here in Canada who are investing institutions, but you know there there frankly aren't many developers doing it on a large scale. So building off our successful projects at York University, which is the quad 
We have two phases there. We're also just about to complete an adaptive reuse project in Guelph at, on University of Guelph lands. We have a second phase kicking off. And really, you know, you look at, again, the trends. I go, I go back to the, you know, goal of 500,000 people a year over the next few years and certainly has to continue on because people are getting older People are having less children and, you know, Canada has some big bills to pay. So we need to let in younger people. And a great angle for that is them coming out of our school system, which is, you know, amongst the best in the world and they need housing. And what we think will actually happen is when you get students out of traditional apartments, triplexes, et cetera, and get them in a purpose-built student accommodation, it'll actually help with affordability because then they move out of housing typologies that would otherwise be available for the general public. You know, we've seen in mature markets like the UK and US and some parts of Europe, that student housing opportunity has really seen a lot of capital investment in the space. Groups like Blackstone, you know, groups like GIC and others like big sovereign wealth funds. That has happened on a relatively small scale in Canada. And that's a big focus of ours as well. We got about uh, four minutes left, so you don't have to justify this answer, but which province is next? Good question. So we in our, in Reef, we own assets across the country in BC, in Quebec, in Manitoba. We actually have a student housing project in Manitoba as well. So we have developed there. I would say BC has, you know, a lot of the trends that Ontario has, right? Like a lot of people going out there, but you know what the beauty is about about Forum, we're very nimble and adaptable and agile. So if we see, you know, all of a sudden a push to a different part of the country or a different jurisdiction with some deep research and analysis and thought, you know, we'll, we'll make that jump. We're not just saying that we're developing in Toronto and the GTA and Greater Golden Horseshoe specifically. So, you know, hopefully that answers it. I would kind of prescribe to that because... The economics, the underlying fundamentals seem to be across the country, right? Yeah. No matter what, it's we need more housing. And so there's there's an opportunity, basically, basically, not everywhere, but most everywhere in the country. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So Ali, thank you so much for the time. A very, uh, very interesting conversation. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Ali, thanks again. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.